0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today, I am talking to Pim Levelt about his recent work, The History of Psycholinguistics, the pre-Chomskian era, a work of scholarship that explores the wealth of psychological research in language that took place in the 150 years before the so-called birth of psycholinguistics. In this interview, we can only scratch the surface of this work, we talk about many of the important figures in the field and see how crucial theoretical proposals have been made and long forgotten before their recent rediscoveries. And we consider how some researchers and their ideas to be unfairly maligned in the linguistics' collective consciousness. Today I am delighted to welcome Professor Pym Levelt to discuss his new book, A History of Psycholinguistics, the Pre-Chomskian Era. It's a fascinating and engrossing work of enormous breadth and depth, surveying research on the psychology of language from the 18th century up to the 1950s. Pym, this book is the result of an enormous amount of historical research. What prompted you to take on that challenge?
1: Well, two things. Uh, First of all, I had noticed over the decades that uh, my my colleagues and my students generally believed that psycholinguistics came about during the so-called cognitive revolution in, in, in the 1950s, early 60s. Uh, so it's young science. And uh, this is expressed everywhere, in textbooks, all over the place, Uh, our discipline is, what, half a century old. Now, I knew this is wrong, and I felt it is apparently necessary that um, my colleagues will hear more about that. Uh, And I did know that psycholinguistics, and I mean empirical psycholinguistics, had its roots in the end of the 18th century. So that is almost 200 years earlier than the the general belief, the general view on this. Um, and I, I felt I should do something about it. the other. The other reason why I wanted to do this is simply because I had myself always been interested in the history of the field I've always been reading in the old uh, books the old fat German books the old French books the English books the Dutch books I had uh, sort of uh, some overview of what had happened and I felt this is the moment to do it. I had just stopped in doing my experimental work. I had become emeritus of my Max Planck Institute in Neymar. M&M, and this was a very nice next project because I could essentially do it all alone, without students, uh, without teamwork as I was used to do.
0: Sure. Um, one thing that's sort of a commonplace of, of psycholinguistic research is that there are uh, there's this cycle of forgetting that we sort of imagine that, well, notice that after 20 or 30 years, yep. work is often forgotten about and not cited. But um, yep. what, what you reveal in this book is that it goes back a lot further. Um, despite your experience, were you surprised by exactly how widespread this, this forgetting is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have been time and again... Much surprised by what I found, theories, concepts, etc., that we all felt to be modern, new, uh, just invented, just tested. You you find them time and again back in the old literature. I can give you a whole list of examples um, of of such reinventions of the wheel. What had to be reinvented, for instance, uh, in experimental psycholinguistics, in the theory of speaking. So, how do we produce an expression, an intentional expression that is informative for the for the listener? These days, we have detailed theories of stages that you must go through in order to produce your utterance from the intention you have. And these theories have been developed, especially also in my own uh, Max Planck Institute. And you test them by chronometric measurements. You try to uh, determine which phase is taking place or which stage is taking place when, and for what duration. And we have become very sophisticated in measuring durations of, for instance, when you name a picture, of recognizing the picture as an object, uh, of retrieving the concept that goes with it, of retrieving the syntactic word that can express it, of retrieving its phonological code, and then of planning your articulation. All that has been studied extensively. However, this had all been done, at least to some uh, rather impressive extent, in Gunn's laboratory, to be precise, in the years 1884 to 87 by James McKean Cattell, the young American. At the time, he was around 27. And he built all the chronometric equipment to do such measurements, such as a voice key to to register the moment at which speech starts. When you, for instance, name a picture of a tree, you start saying tree, and you must then measure the moment in time that the articulation the articulated word tree, begins so james mckean Cattell invented a voice key a very clever piece of equipment and he did all the measurements to study the process of picture naming of color naming of number naming of word reading of letter reading, all these processes that we now have studied in endless amounts of experiments in, in recent decades, they had first been done in Wundt's laboratory and everybody had forgotten about them. I, I found a magnificent example. Other example? Um, sure, yes. I guess most of us experimental psycholinguists are familiar. With Marsland Wilson's cohort theory, which was developed when, when William was a member of staff in our beginning Max Planck Institute. That was a very influential theory and a very clever theory. It said when you hear a word, the first sound of the word, the first phoneme or maybe two phonemes will activate all the words in your mental lexicon in your memory that begin that way right so when you hear the word church the initial ch will also activate the word chair right or chunk or whatever then the next Mm -hmm. speech sounds sound comes in and then you reduce that initial cohort of words to just those words that begin with that particular initial stretch, that somewhat longer initial stretch, and so on. You keep reducing the cohort of potential but activated words until only one is left. That is then the word recognized. So that's the cohort theory. To my great surprise, I found that cohort theory... In detail, described with example words, etc., in the work by Exner, a Viennese neurologist, published in 1893. Amazing, an amazing feat. So you can find it in my book. It is one of the most beautiful examples. Interestingly enough, Exner did not do any experiment. He just proposed the theory, and that was it. Now, sometimes I think if we had known this proposal, if we had kept it in, our, in the memory of our discipline, we could have been earlier to start testing it experimentally, and that would have been very useful. That's another example. Third example. In 1895, Meringer and Meyer published their classic study on speech error analysis. They had developed a system of systematically collecting spontaneous speech errors. In total, they collected an amount in the end of about 2,500 speech errors, spontaneous speech errors, and they analyzed them. And they developed a theory about how these speech errors come about, these anticipations, Perseverations, uh, interchanges, etc. That theory uh, was forgotten, co- completely forgotten in the literature. And it was all rediscovered uh, when people like uh, Cohen and Frumkin, and then later uh, many followers, in particular Merrill Garrett and, and Shattergoof Nagel and so on, uh, started. Collecting spontaneous speeches, detecting this, the same patterns, and deriving very similar theories—completely forgotten. Other one?
0: Well, I was—I was going to say there. Are, there are so many, and, and one thing that strikes me very forcibly about those examples and, and many of the others in your book is uh, the fact that it's suddenly one realizes that it's so much more difficult to formulate a new idea or to do even a new experiment that hasn't been done before in some way. Does that, is, do, do you have that feeling in, in looking back in the discipline in more, in more detail and subjecting it to this kind of scrutiny that, that suddenly uh, the challenge is, isn't that much greater to do original work?
1: Well, there is a general difference... I should say, between what was done during the last few decades of the 19th century and during the first half of the 20th century. The daring theorizing was, was a, really a characteristic of the late 19th century. Uh, such theories like Exner who proposed this theory that I just m- mentioned the the, the the cohort theory that you come across time and again. Wilhelm Bund was very good in developing that sort of theories but m- more generally it was apparently practice for a scientist to first of all develop a theory. Now that got lost to a large extent, not fully, of course, and there are always excellent exceptions, uh, but it was lost to a last extent during the first half of the 20th century. The most characteristic feature of that period is that people were extremely keen on getting data and reporting data in tables, in graphs, but then not doing anything with them, not developing theory further. And that had several reasons. One of them was certainly that with the shift of the focus of the field from Europe to the anglo saxon world, and especially to the United States, field came very much under the influence of behaviorism. And in the behavioristic periods in psycholinguistics, There was very, very little theorizing because there was this default theory, the SR theory, stimulus response theory. Uh, Our task is to predict the response when we know the stimulus or to predict the stimulus when we know the response. That's what we should do. And what happens in the whole trajectory between stimulus and response, in mind, one would say, uh, is not our business. So they simply didn't want to think about mental constructions, mental processes. And that was a great loss. The, uh, in short, the 19th century literature is theoretically much more interesting than most, not all, but most of the 20th century early 20th century literature
0: It's definitely the impression uh, that you give in the book that the, the very promising position at the turn of the century going up to the, uh, the uh, as you put it, the grand synthesis of Willem Wundt uh, is very much wasted in this, in this um, yeah. sort of loss of theory and for various other oh. historical reasons which we'll come back yeah. to yeah. Why do you feel that the um, narrow behaviorist position was so appealing to, the, uh, to its proponents at that time?
1: Yeah, that that is a difficult question that has never been fully answered. One thing y- you could see happen even within the relatively small domain of psycholinguistics, small as compared to psychology uh, as a whole. Uh, There's the following: the American early uh, work in experimental psychology. And also in psycholinguistics was introduced mostly by students of Wundt who had all worked in Wundt's laboratory, like, like uh, James McKean Cattell and like uh, Titchener and others, Angel in Stanford and many more, and Judd in, in Chicago. They had been students of Wundt. And so they knew how they should do detailed, precise, chronometric experiments to find out how mental processes are organized. Still, these pioneers, American pioneers, very quickly moved to other type of business, namely to a practical approach. That is, they were not, as Wundt was, a general psycholinguist, that is, asking what are the processes that run language for us in our mind no they were mostly uh, focusing on differential psychology that is what can what can we do with what we know and what we can measure for clinical uh, purposes what can we do to help children develop normally Uh, We should develop mental tests. The term mental test was uh, coined by James McKean Cattell, who had done this wonderful work in Wundt's laboratory. So there was a move to practical matters. And that is general when you read the the famous old history of psychology by Boring. uh, He is also uh, noticing that. American psychologists became differential psychologists. Now, that practical purpose uh, was a good background against which behaviorism could develop. It is a no-nonsense background. The thing that's important is what comes out and what can we change and how can we steer things. Their behaviorism is uh, a very natural ally because it tells you, what should I do about the stimulus to get that result, to get the child learn quicker, to, to get a, a clinical phenomenon reduced, right, etc. Their behaviorism seemed to be the no-nonsense theory that you might want to use. So, the whole interest in in the subtleties of mental processes, and that is in the first place, general psychologists, how do we human beings process language in this case, that was largely lost as a perspective in psychology and as a perspective in psycholinguistics.
0: Is it fair to say that the the sort of shallow short term behaviourist uh, approaches to to some practical problems were or are actually quite effective, and that in some sense we we have quite a lot of we have to make quite a lot of theoretical progress to find something that's both sophisticated and as effective or or am I overstating their case
1: well what has been t- to some extent effective? is in particular the work on child language development in the following sense. The child uh, welfare institutions in, in several places, there were six of them, but two were concentrating uh, on, on language development in Ohio and Minnesota. The, they developed grand-scale statistical studies of how children at what age uh, levels children develop a vocabulary of a particular size an utterance complexity of a particular level a sound uh, articulatory ability of a particular level all these all these large scale measurements set norms so now when you have a child and you think it is not developing well then you can simply measure it and you can see whether the child conforms to the norms that is certainly useful it is theoretically without much interest but it is certainly useful Uh, and i think those uh, tests of verbal ability uh, have been used to good purpose and are still being used uh, to help children develop Uh, But theoretically, it's it's without much interest. Um, Now, on the other hand, I should immediately add that the few behaviorists who were considering general psychological issues as far as language use is concerned, people such as... uh, Skinner in the end, but, but before him, Asgood. Uh Osgood is the better one, honestly. There have been about five or six behavioristic psycholinguists who have written monographs on the field as a whole, theoretical monographs. And uh, those were people like like Weiss, Kantor in particular, And Skinner, these books are not about data. What they are doing is just the following. They are putting the traditional terminology in psycholinguistics, the mental terminology, into a new language, which they themselves called behaviorese. And behaviorese is a language in which you express notions without involving mentalistic constructs. So, in objective terms, what do you see in the behavior? Uh, What is there in the stimulus? What is there in the context? But we are not going to talk about ideas, about intentions, about sentence schemas, No, 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 that's all mentalistic. So what they've done is translating the traditional field into behaviories, and they did it all in different ways, and they hated one another for the ways uh, the other did this translation into behaviories. They, they, They totally disagreed with one another.
0: So it's like that; it uh, does have a ring of modernity to
1: it. Yeah. yeah yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, when you read this, y- you you cannot understand really that this has been possible. It is really such a minor play of words among a bunch of a bunch of scientists who have totally isolated themselves from the traditions in the field and from the major the f- major questions that had been raised uh, long before they started writing
0: i'd like to take this opportunity if i may then to go back to the uh, the origins of the field and um, in the first part of your book you situate the origins of psycholinguistics on uh, on four or in four roots.
1: yeah yeah,
0: the yeah. earliest of which is is perhaps the late um, eighteenth century sort of philological tradition yep yeah uh, it's you're it's um Heimann Steintal that you are uh, yep. cr- inclined to credit working in the mid nineteenth century with yep. actually formulating the discipline of psycholinguistics um of course this is obviously something we think of as a period of great scientific progress Darwin yes yep. um but then in some sense, Steintal seems to be drawing upon uh specific traditions in both psychology and philology, that are already quite old by the time he's working. Is, is that your impression?
1: Yeah, he, and, and he's quite honest about it. He he, uh, he calls himself a Humboldtian. So he, he had never met Humboldt because Humboldt was already dead when Steintal um, studied at Berlin. Uh, but um, he was much impressed by Humboldt too much to my feeling, but one thing he picked up from Humboldt is really essential to the formulation of the aims of psycholinguistics. Humboldt had said that language is not what our philologists are studying, namely old texts. No, language is a Tätigkeit; it's an activity. Language is what the speaker does. So that's a process theory of language. That, of course, is really an important insight from the point of view of psycholinguistics. We are creating language all day when we speak. And of course, when we listen, but in particular when we speak. And that was the notion Steinthal accepted. And then he said, Okay, uh, if we want to understand language, then, uh, and understanding language in that period was in particular understanding the origins of language, then we must have a psychological theory of the speaker. We must understand the properties of the activity the speaker performs. That was a totally new insight. Nobody had said that uh, before. And Steintal then goes all out to propose a psychological theory of the speaker. Now, there was no such theory around. He had to invent it. And in fact, he did. He invented a theory of the speaker. And that was the first psycholinguistic theory. And therefore, I have credited him with uh, this in, in invention. He was the first to formulate a psycholinguistic theory. Now, the theory he developed did not come totally f- from the blue air. He used a an existing psychological theory, which had never been used for explaining language or the behavior of the speaker. But it was a theory that was around, and it was a theory by Herbart. Herbart was was Kant's successor in Königsberg, and he was a mathematical psychologist, we we would now call him. He developed a theory about how ideas attract one another or uh, dispel one another in our minds, and in particular, how they get into consciousness or get pushed out of consciousness. And how they form conglomerates in subconsciousness, in your memory. That was Herbert's theory. And it was a mathematical theory. He he provides all the differential equations. He was really very clever. Differential equations that govern this pushing and attracting of ideas. And that was the theory Steintel adopted. And then Steintel said, okay, what really are the ideas when they are in consciousness. And he said, mostly, mostly, they are words. So we have words in consciousness that represent meanings, conglomerates of ideas that are subconscious, that will never get into consciousness as a whole. We only have words in conscious spoken words, and we, we are speaking to ourselves the whole day. These spoken words are the conscious reflections of highly complex meaning processes uh, in our s- subconscious. Now, interestingly enough, that theory was also reinvented. It was reinvented by Ray jackendorf in his book about consciousness and in his recent book, A User's Guide to Thought, and uh, language. Very interesting, just exactly the same thought. It had been forgotten uh, now for, what, 150 years.
0: Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And then another thing that seems curious when you describe um, Steintal's work in the light of Herbert's psychology is almost the idea that the the psychology uh, has something more in common or it feels as though it's sort of naturally akin to accounts about for example the neural basis of of thought
1: yeah it was it is compatible with what we now call a connectionist view on what's going on in the mind where there are large associative networks being built up changed where weights are changed by use and by repetition etc etc there there is a similarity there so there's the old the old association theory of mind it goes back to human earlier uh, the British associationists uh, in particular
0: you discussed the foundational um neurological work that was potentially relevant to linguistics and a, and a foundation for psycholinguistics yeah. in, a, in another chapter um, yeah. in which you tackle the topic of the localization of brain functions. Yeah. And you yeah. give a very nuanced discussion of the work of uh, Franz Josef Gall, who's been yeah. considered the founder of phrenology, but whose work was nevertheless respected a great deal by later researchers, yeah. some yeah. of whose work own work better stands up to scrutiny today. Um, do you feel that Gall's repu- uh, reputation, that the reputation of his co-workers at the time is excessively maligned
1: yeah it is maligned let me first say what, what i noticed in the secondary literature on on on, on Gall is that most of these articles give the impression that the author didn't read the grand work by gal there aren't many copies left of that wonderful huge big uh, beautifully edited book in fact it's it is four books in two grand folio size volumes with a third volume with exactly 100 anatomical plates that gal uh, drew that work is it, it, it was published in french and it is basically not read. So people are mostly citing one or another shorter paper by Gall, and that gives a really the wrong impression about his work. What happened was this. Gall was the first really serious great brain anatomist. He started his work, in in 1785, that was his dissertation in Vienna, and then began dissecting brains on a daily basis almost, and doing the anatomy of the brain and describing the structures for the first time. It had never been done before. And this book that was published in the years 1810 to 1819 uh, is the result of that. ...of that grand work. Now, Gaul had the important notion that the structure of the brain, in some way or another, relates to the mental functions that are based on the functioning of the brain. Now, that was not a common view in those times. In fact, Kaiser Franz sent him on Christmas Eve in 1801... A letter which forbade him to lecture because his materialistic lectures endangered religion. So it was not obvious to say that the mind is in some way or another run by the brain. He then used some kind of faculty theory, um, faculties of, 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 Uh, language, faculties of thinking, faculties of of, uh, perception, etc., etc. These faculties, he claimed, are somewhere localized in particular regions of the brain. Now, that thought is a modern thought, be it, of course, uh, much more subtle now, uh, but 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 still, I mean, what is it? Two, f- three years ago, we could read that taxi drivers in London have a bigger hippocampus than other people uh, because the hippocampus is our uh, region where where spatial skills are 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 uh, running. Galt said, "Okay, when a faculty is." well-developed, the region is a bit larger. And that is still an idea that has not left us fully. So all this was totally reasonable. It was a reasonable hypothesis to make. And and new, really new. So there was his beautiful book, but the problem was, and that has done him not very much uh, good, he had as a an assistant, Casper uh, Spurzheim. and Casper Spurzheim had worked with him on on the on the dissections uh, uh, on the brains, both in, in in Vienna and later in Paris, and he also joined him in writing this grand work. So he uh, participated in writing volume one and a small part of uh, of volume two. And then they, they uh, got into great trouble. Uh, Spurzheim left and began his own business. And that business was a business for the popular saloons and the phrenological societies. The term phren- phrenology was introduced by Spurzheim, not by Gall. Gall hated the term. Gall was not a phrenologist. Uh, but Spurzheim went around to all these phrenological societies in Edinburgh, in London, in, in Paris, uh, later in Boston. And he was also the inventor of these uh, popular heads with labels of faculties written on them. And you can still buy them in shops. Uh, that was Spurzheim's work. Uh, and and uh, what Gal now does in in volume three of his books is open it with sixteen pages of diatribe against his former assistant uh, Spurzheim had published a book of which two hundred and fifty four pages had been plagiarized from their co- uh, joint texts without mention. That was one. Spurzheim had changed the theory in ways that were just uh, ridiculous, inventing new faculties for which there was no empirical uh, evidence, such as benevolence or supernaturalness, that sort of thing. Spurzheim uh, had made this a popular uh, science, and probably he made quite some money lecturing on these popular things in in the in the saloons, in the phrenological societies and otherwise now that of course was in in, in the general public this was gall's theory and uh, so gall was the uh, was the uh, crazy phrenologist but he wasn't so he has been he has been mistreated in history and uh, I am not the first to write that because this has been mentioned time and again also during the 19th century he has been applauded for uh, for his work in uh, brain anatomy and for his psychological work uh, all over the century but what you now know and read about gal is all sort of yeah funny and that's a pity because he was a great scientist. Yes,
0: it's another theme that um recurs from time to time in the book that uh, the people who tend to be regarded today rather casually as being somehow fundamentally mistaken in their assumptions yep. actually look a lot more credible on close scrutiny. Oh yeah. Um another another name that springs to mind in this in this uh, connection from the twentieth century is Benjamin Wolfe. Um yeah. do you
1: think do you uh, think
0: linguists are neglectful of history, and that extends to dismissing a lot of past projects and somewhat too harshly? Y-
1: yes, uh, I would say so. So, Worf developed a position in linguistics that, that helped developing, a, p- a position in linguistics that was certainly an important new development. What I have described in the book as sort of the dominant view uh, in linguistic circles during the 19th century was that languages differ in complexity uh, and that so-called primitive languages are simpler, are not as much developed as languages such as German, for instance, or at the very top, Old Greek. That, that was the, the, the absolute apex of languages. That notion, which I call the vertical notion, languages differ in complexity, was generally accepted. Wundt, for instance, went so far, still in 1920, in his autobiography, to say, look, people, the history of human thought, of human thinking abilities uh, is still for the taking. Go out, find all these more primitive, faraway languages and you can see how human thought developed in the course of evolution. That was the notion. And uh, it was easily coupled with all sorts of other things such as different races may have a different uh, developmental potential, right? So you get easily into rather risky types of theorizing. Now, during the early 20th century, and then picked up also by Worf, came the other idea. Languages don't differ In complexity, there's not a linear order of languages. No, they just differ. And then the next step that that Worf took and a few others, even before him, was, okay, if languages are just different, then their users may have different ways of thinking, different ways of cognizing, dependent on what their language allows them to do. That was the idea, and that's called linguistic relativism. Linguistic relativism goes also very well uh, with the vertical type of theory. If it is the case that languages differ in complexity, then their users will probably differ in the complexity of their thought. Now, this doesn't follow logically at all, of course, uh, but that was... A pretty generally uh, shared opinion. Now, in, in the 20, early 20th century, this more horizontal view, languages are just different, combined with linguistic relativism, when the languages are different, the way of thinking, cognizing is different, that came to be around. And Warp was certainly not the first to say that. Uh, some 10 years. Earlier, the German linguist Weisgerber had produced a book which was precisely doing that. When you read that book, you think you're reading Worf. And Worf never refers to that book. He had simply hadn't seen it. I don't know whether Worf knew German. Uh, it, it, it could be because he, 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 he was generally a good linguist, uh, but but anyhow, he didn't know about the work of Weisgerber. So this came to be around, and now that view, uh, combined with relativism, became the hot issue in linguistics. Let's uh, just say a word about what Weisgerber did with it. He said, okay, if your language is such and such, then your thinking must become such and such. Uh, So he said, it is not you who think. No, it is the mother tongue in you who thinks. So really, totally deterministic. Worf did not go that far. Worf was not really a determinist in terms of linguistic relativity. But he certainly... Claimed that the ways of thinking between users of different languages could be quite fundamentally different. Now that hasn't stood the test of time. We, we now know that this Weltanschauung idea in linguistic relativism, that your language determines your view, your cognizing of the social and physical world around you, that That is not tenable. On the other hand, there's also good evidence that your language can provide you with means that make it easier or more obvious to first think in a particular way. But that is not determinism. You can just as well as a speaker from another language Think Something else. So that's strong version of relativism, either in the deterministic way of Weisgerber or in Worf's pretty strong Weltanschauung type of idea uh, has not survived uh, has not not survived till the present day and there have been really really big fights about it so that led the, the fights by the way led to something similar to Galt's case Worf was accused of of the most horrible things in the literature and uh, and that is again not truthful There is now a new edition of uh, Worf's papers uh, with the preface of Stephen Levinson. And that preface really sketches beautifully what the situation of Worf really was and how he has been misconstrued by many, many modern uh, linguists.
0: The, um, the theme of relativism, and in particular the verticality, resurfaces yep. rather forcibly in the, in the 14th and penultimate chapter of your book, which discusses yep. psycholinguistics under yep. the Third Reich. Yep, yep. Um, you give very powerful examples of how numerous researchers apparently completely subjugated their scientific principles in order to produce work that was what you might call ideologically sound, yep. um, much of which yep. sounds ludicrous even in the light of what was already known at the time. Were you yep. surprised by, by how blatant some of this was?
1: Yeah. I was really surprised I hadn't expected it. I was not aware of the easy marriage of relativistic ideas, uh, especially in the vertical view that is languages differ in complexity and therefore their uses differ in 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 mental ability. How easily that uh, marriage uh, between that vertical view, the relativistic vertical view, and racism, was races differ in developmental potential. There was an idea also around during the nineteenth century, but it was very much picked up, of course, happily picked up in the Nazi period. And uh, then, of course, one of the one of the issues to be handled was are Jews of a different race and is that race does it allow for the best things in human our potential uh, etc and so you find the most awful the most awful theorizing about why the jewish race cannot do what the what what the german the other German races or the German races can produce and, and, and can develop into. It, it is a horrible literature. You see how initially serious linguistic work, whether in the domain of vertical theories or horizontal theories, can be abused, can be misused for political reasons. And that happened at the grand scale, so Weisgerber himself became a linguist uh, who functioned in the uh, propaganda machinery of the Nazi uh, regime, um, and that happened. There were, were many, many linguists and psycholinguists who played a, a pretty, a pretty ugly role there. I give several examples.
0: The, um, the book ends on, a, of course, a more positive note. Uh, the, the, the first and fifteenth chapters both uh, cover, as a sort of topic, topping and tailing the book, the uh, period that's commonly and erroneously thought of as the birth of psycholinguistics, 1950s. Yeah. Um, yeah. You stop at the point where, as you acknowledge in the epilogue, you yourself enter the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you also acknowledge there that the personal experience gives the book what you call some hidden touch of autobiography. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Are there any particular ways in which you feel your selection of topics or your perspective is is distinctively personal?
1: No, I don't think my history my, my treatment of the earlier history is is personal personal experiences have certainly informed me. I've had the pleasure to work with both the leaders of the new psycholinguistics of the 1950s and 60s namely George Miller and Charles Osgood, and George Miller had invited me to, to spend a year, uh, as a postdoc fellow at the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard, which was directed by himself and Jerome Bruner, whom I also came to know very well, in fact. There I learned to, to know George as the mathematical psychologist he was at heart. He had introduced Shannon and Weaver's mathematical theory of communication as a new tool for the analysis of sequential behavior, language behavior in particular. And next he had then adopted Chomsky's theory of formal generative grammars, testing the so-called psychological reality of notions such as uh, phrase structure, transformations, deep structure. And it came then really all quite close to me because I was also auditing Noam Chomsky's courses at MIT, and I've always been on good terms with Noam Chomsky. In fact, he sent me a very kind and extensive email in response to my sending him my book. And I spent another year together with George Miller at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. But, but then while at Harvard, I received an invitation from Charlie Osgood, who spent a semester with him at Urbana, Illinois. And and whereas Miller had quickly abandoned behaviorism under Chomsky's influence, Osgood remained absolutely faithful to his behavioristic mediation theory. It was my first personal confrontation with the uh, behavioristic tradition, which was about to evaporate. And this experience certainly helped me to write in an informed way about that tradition in psycholinguistics. So in short, I, I still covered my, my personal memories of Miller, Chomsky, Brunner, Roger Brown, Morris Halley, Roman Jacobson, Eric Landerberg and, and other leaders uh, of the new psycholinguistics. But I don't think it painted my way of describing that work. No, no, indeed not.
0: Um, our time is nearly up in this interview. Uh, I'd like to uh, ask as a final question: um, what comes next? Uh, but in particular, in this case, I have to ask whether there's uh, the prospect of an autobiography to provide similar illumination over a large portion of the uh, of the more recent yeah that, like,
1: just, yeah, that, that, that is a good question uh, and of course uh, when I started writing this book uh, uh, people said okay I hope you will do the full history huh? <laughs> at least up to the year 2000 and in, indeed initially I did have that intention but then slowly but surely I felt it impossible to do that and for two reasons the first one was practical when I had produced uh, the text roughly up to the Cognitive Revolution, it was already so much that adding a further history up to the year 2000 would probably double the size of the book, and and it would be an unusable book, it would be a hopeless, hopeless thing that nobody would would study and, and, and so that was not a good thing. but the other thing is much more important i became a player myself uh, in the modern history of psycholinguistics in particular since the establishment of 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 the my max Planck institute for psycholinguistics and i cannot see how i could write an objective history of the modern say Last half century of psycholinguistics. If I must include describing my own work and the work of my institute, that I cannot do. That somebody else should do. Uh, I, I've been too much of a player in the field myself. So I've decided not to do that and um, don't wait for it. It won't come. I d- did add, however, that I already in a certain way, described the early history of modern psycholinguistics, that is, the from the cognitive revolution on till 1970s, so the first 20 years, I more or less described that and, and in much detail in my earlier 1974 book on formal grammars in linguistics and psycholinguistics. There you can see how all these formal notions in linguistics were developed and how they were applied and used in the early psycholinguistics which which was much concerned with proving the psychological reality of linguistic notions uh, such as uh, phrase structure and such as transformations etc deep structure that I all described and in I don't think there is a more comprehensive description of that around. So, let people go back to my 1974 book, which was republished in 2008, and they can find that bit of history. But from 1970 on, uh, no, uh, I won't do it. It's not available, not from my hand, not by my hand.
0: Uh, well, if you uh, if you decide to uh, to recant and, and write an autobiography following following Wundt's example, uh, I shall I shall call back in 20 years to ask you about it.
1: <laughs> well, look, it wouldn't have worked with Wundt. Wundt wrote his autobiography. He published it in 1920. The preface is signed Wilhelm Wundt Leipzig August 1920 and he died the same month. That may happen to me too, so Good luck. (laughs) I'll have to get in quickly. But um,
0: in the meantime, I wish you uh, many, many more productive years. And thank you for for giving this this wonderful work.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for interviewing me so extensively.
0: I've been talking to Pim Leyveld about a history of psycholinguistics. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.